Welcome to Simple Church. So thankful to have you here with us this morning. If you've been here with us, we have been going through the book of Romans. And last week, uh, we finished Romans 8, and then we actually went into the first, or we covered the first 13 verses of Romans 9. And so this week, we will finish Romans 9. Um, and if you were here with us last week, you know that Romans 9 is, is very challenging um, to me. I, I think in preparing for this sermon, um, this week was much more challenging to me than last week because it, it kind of gets more into um, the meat of this issue of God's sovereign choice, which is the heading in my Bible for Romans chapter 9. And so, like I said last week, um, we're not going to figure it all out. We're not going to completely understand everything that's said. And when we talk about issues such as election or uh, predestination, I know those are bad words for a lot of people. But as we talk about them, we have to understand that there's a balance that must be struck between the sovereignty of God and the heart of God for his creation. I'm very w well aware, as I said last week, that there are passages in Scripture that may seem at the surface to contradict this one. There are passages like John 3.16 that tell us, For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son. And there are passages like 2 Peter 3.9 that talk about how God is not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. Those verses exist. They are real. They are true. They must be observed, for they deal with the heart of God. Romans 9, however, deals more with the sovereignty of God. It doesn't mean God's heart is not evident to us in this passage, but it's talking specifically about his sovereignty. And so although we are not ignoring or disregarding any of those other passages, we are simply going through this text and what it says. And so I want us to keep that all in mind. And as I read um, Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 33, I ask that you um, have your Bibles and read along with me. Romans 9, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, 
Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word in Romans 9. I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts to be receptive this morning. God, this is a passage that in so many ways offends our senses, offends the, the bits and pieces of us that think it's unreasonable or unfair or unequal. But you are God, and we are not. And so I pray that you would humble us this morning as you reveal your word to us in truth. Continue to show us mercy and forgive us in the many ways that we fail you. Make us more like you every day so that we can come to know you and love you more and carry out your hope to a world that is so desperately in need. In these things we, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I want us to look at um, kind of where we are right now. Last week we ended uh, with this verse. This is Romans 9 verse 13. It says, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That comes from Malachi chapter 1 verse 3. And so as we're kind of talking about that, um, we see that God is, is seemingly at least picking and choosing who he shows favor to and who he does not show favor to. And as we see in verse 11, neither Jacob nor Esau nor Isaac or Ishmael did anything to deserve this favor or, or this lack of favor from God because it says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. And so that leaves us wanting an answer. We feel like we deserve an answer. And the only response we get from God is also in verse 11, and it says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Um, if that doesn't satisfy you, then that makes me feel better because it doesn't satisfy me either. But I think we're going to learn that what's most important is not that we're satisfied. This leads us in our natural instinct to want to call God unfair. To want to say that to offer salvation or favor to some 
and not others makes us think that he is lacking in love or forgiveness or mercy. And our solution that we would come up with would be at least to offer those things to everyone and then to let each choose for themselves. And so here's Paul's response to that. Starting in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is a direct quote from the mouth of God to Moses from Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. Um, this is essentially God pulling the age-old parent trick of saying, because I said so. Um, you know, we all hate when our parents do that, but we can't say, well, we're not supposed to say anything. I had a loud mouth. But we're not supposed to say anything when our parents do that because they're our parents, right? But this is God saying, I will show mercy on whom I'll show mercy, and I'll show compassion on whom I show compassion. Who are you to ask? But again, like, like I said a, a couple minutes ago, that's not enough for us. It's not enough for me. I, I want um, a lot more than that. I want an answer. I think we all do. Around this time, every year, you'll always see videos on Facebook or on YouTube of people going around and, you know, spreading Christmas cheer, and they'll go to... A random person in the grocery store and they'll pay for their groceries or um, they'll find a, a, maybe a homeless person on the street and they'll buy them a meal and it always bothers me that they have to video themselves doing that um, that's not my point but you see those videos and in as many of those videos as I've seen I've never once or, or at least not that I can remember seen someone comment on those videos and say that Whoever the person is buying the groceries or buying the, the meal is unfair because they only did that for one person or for a handful of people. I've never seen anyone call them unfair because they didn't do it for everybody. And it, it's pretty common sense. We'll think about that and we'll, we'll go, okay, yeah, the, the person in the grocery store or the person on the street didn't deserve that meal. They didn't deserve to have their groceries paid for. They didn't do anything. The person who paid for it did it out of generosity, out of Christmas spirit, if that's what you want to call it. Yet, when we think about God, our tone tends to change. So let's kind of think about this for a second. A perfect and holy God created an entire universe simply by speaking it into existence. He created it rightly for the sole purpose of that creation, glorifying and praising him for all of eternity. And then not only that, but that creator was good enough to create one being in his creation greater than the rest by giving it this eternal remnant, this this. Um, image like his own and he called that being mankind and then not only that but he was good enough to make all of us one of those beings one of, of that category of mankind we could have 
been made an animal or a, a blade of grass or a grain of sand, and that sounds silly, but we could have. He made us part of mankind. There is no other creature on the planet that can say it, it has the gifts and the blessings from God that we have. We actually have dominion, as we know in Genesis, over the rest of God's creation. Think about that. But because of this image, because of this eternal aspect, this soul that we were given, we are actually the only members of creation that have the ability to disobey God. I don't know why we were given that ability. It would have made things a lot easier if we weren't, but we were, and that's exactly what we did. We looked at a holy, perfect, righteous creator, and we said, not good enough. And we decided that what we were going to do was try to replace him with ourselves. We were going to try to meet our own needs and glorify ourselves. And it's not like we did it one time. We continue to do it every single day that we are alive. And because of that, we were no longer promised eternity with God, but rather now deserving eternity in the presence of his wrath in a place called hell. And the thing about hell is that it will only be filled with people who fully deserve to be there. There will never be anyone in hell who is too good to be in hell. And what that means is that actually everyone who has ever lived, except for one, and we'll get to that in a minute, deserves this eternity in the presence of God's wrath, this hell. But God, rich in love and mercy, decided to save some from this place when they could not save themselves. He offers them this free gift of salvation. And his word says that there's nothing we could do to earn or deserve or choose or attain it. It actually tells us that until he saves us, unless we are saved, we are all dead in our sins and trespasses, meaning we can do nothing else. But although this gift is free to us, it was not free to him. His perfect and only son died the death that we deserve and paid the punishment that we deserve to pay so we can have this free gift. Freedom indeed is not free. Yet even through all this, we tell him that if he does this for some and not others, it's not enough. Think about that for a second. Let that sink in. Who are we to tell a holy, righteous, perfect, loving God that he is not fair, that he is not merciful enough or loving enough? Who are we? We are his mere creation, and he is the creator. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, 
but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This quote here in, in, in verse 17, for this very purpose I have raised you up, is from Exodus 9, verse 16. And if you'll go back uh, behind that a couple of verses, what had happened is that Moses had gone to Pharaoh several times under the order of God to ask Pharaoh to free the people of, of God from slavery under the Egyptians. And um, Pharaoh had refused to do so. And it, it says several different times that Pharaoh had hardened his heart so he would not listen to the words of God through his prophet Moses. But in verse 12, interestingly enough, it actually says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not listen. I don't know if maybe that means Pharaoh then would have been willing to listen because before this point, there had been, um, there had been six plagues. And so Pharaoh was probably tired of being sick and, you know, um, his cattle being destroyed and his land being destroyed and he probably was getting a little irritated by what was going on and so he may have been willing we don't know but possibly to give in but it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart why would God do this read with me in Exodus chapter 9 starting in verse 13 Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So we see that God hardens the heart of Pharaoh himself. So that Pharaoh will continue to disobey God and God can turn Pharaoh into an instrument of wrath that will show the entire earth his power and his might. And that leads to a very pressing question that Paul addresses in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? If God not only possibly chooses some and rejects others, but actually hardens the hearts of people in this situation, like Pharaoh, so that they are instruments of his wrath to show his power, how does he find guilt? How can he hold them accountable for their sin when he is hardening their hearts? I'm going to give you my answer right now if you're taking notes. Have a pen out. If, if you're not a note taker, remember this. This is going to blow your mind. I don't know. 
I don't know. I don't know how God can hold someone accountable while hardening their hearts. There are much smarter people out there, theologians and pastors, who can probably give you a very in-depth explanation of this. But I just, I don't know. And I don't think Paul does either. But I think what we see from Paul's response is something that is a much greater testament of faith than just knowing the answer. Verse 20. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? We serve a God that is holy and perfect and righteous and he has holy and perfect and righteous purposes for everything that he does and we don't have to always understand that but we choose to believe it because that's what his word tells us it doesn't matter if we understand or if it offends us because it will because there's always going to be that voice of pride that rises up in us and tells us that we know a better way. That something makes more sense to do it that way than how God is doing it. There's always that voice. If you say it's not there, you're lying. I love you. You're lying. We spend so much time wanting answers. And it's not just a questions like this. It's everything. We're always asking questions. And it's not always bad, but we can overdo it. And the reason we always ask questions, we usually do that because we feel like someone has done something wrong or they've done something that is below our standards in a sense. And so we can kind of dole out our judgment on them based upon what their answer is. <coughs> but... When Habakkuk is looking around at the children of Israel and they're being slaughtered and persecuted and enslaved and they're going through a drought and a famine and he asks God why he allows his children to go through these things and he demands a just answer from God. God responds to him in Habakkuk 1 verse 5 and says, If I told you, you wouldn't even believe it. If God told us what he was doing, we wouldn't believe it. And on top of that, he doesn't owe us an answer anyways. God is God, and we are not. Verse 22, what if God, and, and look at this. This what if statement. Paul says God doesn't have to answer you. He's God. But then he kind of throws us a bone here. He, he gives us this what if statement. He says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even though we can't, ever truly understand 
He says, what if maybe, just, just maybe, one of the reasons God does what he does is to rise up these instruments of wrath to show his power to the rest of creation. In the same way that he did to Pharaoh, in the same way that God hardened Pharaoh's heart himself in order to make his glory and power known through the total destruction of a mighty Pharaoh and his mighty army, is there a chance that there is a destruction coming that is infinitely greater? That will not just wipe out many men, but wipes out every remnant and evidence of sin and suffering and evil so that we may see his power and glory and worship him for the rest of eternity like we've never been able to before? Is there a chance that God might know what he's doing because God is God? And we are not. It doesn't matter if you or I understand. God is God. Verse 24, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. He owes us nothing. And yet in his great love and grace and mercy, he still chose to save a few. And we have the audacity to say it's not good enough. The Israelites thought that God owed them salvation because they were the chosen ones. They actually referred to themselves as the chosen ones. And it wasn't in some form of humility like praising God that they were chosen. It was in a form of, of arrogance and pride like, you know, we're the chosen ones and you're not. They thought that they were deserving of God's love. They had earned it because they thought that they followed the law, or at least they could follow the law that God had given them perfectly. And therefore, they said that to be one of his people, you also had to do that. You had to follow the law to the letter. Paul, however, reminds them first from the words of Hosea 2.23 in verse 25, and then from Hosea 1.10 and verse 26, these two different quotes that Israel is just like every other nation. And in fact, um, Israel, if you know anything about it, it's always been a very small group of people, a very seemingly insignificant group of people, especially when compared to the nations around them, such as Egypt, who was the greatest known people in the, in the known world at the time. And yet it says, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. When Israel was not desirable, when there was nothing about it that made it look mighty and great, God chose it anyways. And it wasn't because Israel was good either. Verse 27 says, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully 
and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. They were not good or deserving of being God's chosen people. Israel was just as wicked as any other nation. And um, this uh, quotation comes from Isaiah chapter 10, verses 22 and 23, where it even says that many of those who were part of the Israeli race, who were the people of Israel, it says, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Israel wasn't desirable. Israel was just as wicked, and yet God chose some anyways. And the pattern hasn't changed. If God had not chosen some, they would have faced the same fate as Sodom and Gomorrah. Total destruction. Like Isaiah, or I'm sorry, like Isaac and Jacob that we talked about last week, Israel did nothing to deserve to be God's chosen people. So who are God's chosen people? If, if only a remnant of God's chosen race are saved, then who are God's chosen people? Why some and not others? Verse 30, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. There are Gentiles who have always been the outcast. They never even tried to follow the law. And they, they, most of them didn't know the law. Remember, they didn't have the law. That was given to Israel, God's chosen people. And yet they have attained righteousness. But yet the very people of Israel who had God's law and saw God's character and in many times saw God's presence in their midst did not succeed in attaining righteousness. And the reason is because the Gentiles heard and believed. As being the outcast, they had always inherently understood that they would never be good enough. Which means the minute that they heard they didn't have to be, that was all they needed. But God, as it says in verse 33, and, and this comes from Isaiah 28, 16, actually laid himself a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense in Israel. And that was this law. Not that the law is bad, but knowing that so many would try to pursue the law in order to attain their righteousness, God gave them the law. But then he says, whoever believes in him will not stumble over it and be put to shame. 
It is by faith and not works. Once again, I realize that there are verses in Scripture that seem to contradict this passage. I'm aware of those verses. I can't fully explain to you how they, uh, how verses about the heart of God and, and His love for His creation reconcile with passages like Romans 9. But we know from His Word that they all work together according to His perfect righteousness and, and holiness. And so even though we don't understand it, we don't have to understand it. And so I'll just leave you with this. Christian, you can't earn your salvation. You can't choose your salvation. You can't deserve your salvation. I don't know all the answers, and I never will, but I know this. For whom God chooses, He has shown mercy. And for whom God does not choose, He has shown justice. Had God immediately killed Adam and Eve in the garden, it would have been just. Had God not saved Noah and his family in the flood, it would have been just. Had God not ordered the fish to spit out Jonah on dry land, it would have been just. Had God not sent his son to die, it would have been just. God had not chosen me, it would have been just. But praise his name, he did all of those things out of pure mercy. For that, we can forever praise him for who he is, for his forgiveness and his love. God saves who he saves and does not save who he does not save. And we don't need to know any more than that. We, however, cannot look out into the world and know who is chosen and who is not. And we know that there are those out there who may be his chosen and simply need to hear his name. God does not need to use us. If he chooses any one soul to be saved, it will be saved through whatever means that God finds necessary. But yet he gives us the opportunity to share in the joy of being a part of a dead soul being brought to life. We can ask all the questions we want to and they're good and, and they're righteous and they help us know more about our Lord and Savior. But sometimes the only question we really need to ask is, Lord, where would you have me go? So this morning, I pray that God will transform your heart and mind to live under the peace of his sovereignty and ask him to make clear to you where he is leading you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this mercy that we can grab hold of, that we can always cling to even in the darkest of moments. We're not deserving of it. We can't earn it or attain it, but you have given it to us freely through the work of your Son. And so, Father, help us moving forward to always be thankful, not just on Christmas.
Christmas and not just on Thanksgiving and Easter, but every day that we are alive, help us to be thankful for your love and your mercy. We pray these things in your name, Father. Amen. Um, before we get back to the music, um, as I said last week, uh, Kenny will be bringing the word to you next week. We're very excited about that. Um, and so while I'm still up here, um, I, I just have a couple more things I want to say, and, and it won't take too long. Um, I, like many of you, I've, I've prayed about what's happening with the church. I've um, prayed that God give me clarity and, and understanding and a peace about what is happening. And um, when that happens, I'll let you know. Um, I don't know what God's plan for all of this is. Um, I have had some amazing things happen to me because of the work of God through the ministry of this church. Um, I met my beautiful fiance here and um, because of her, through her also gained a second family. Um, I met some of my closest friends at this church and gained many wonderful relationships. Um, I fell in love with a wonderful group of loud, funny, obnoxious, brilliant kids that I will bet my life are going to set the world on fire for the glory of God one day. And I mean that with every bit of me. Um, I've laughed and cried, I've sang and I've praised within these walls. I made my way from the kid a couple semesters into college who um, came in five minutes late on purpose and always sat in the chairs by the bathrooms because I was extremely introverted and hated everybody and didn't want to talk to anyone. To the, the person who's about to get married and about to graduate college and for whatever reason, y'all give me a microphone and let me come up here. Um, so I take no responsibility for anything that I say. Um, I, I've had moments where I was so low that I didn't feel like I could make it from my car to the door. And I came in here and we worship and in a way that I can't explain, your voices carried me to the throne of God with power and authority. And we've all experienced things like that here and many of you have experienced so much more and you've been here from the beginning. And in two weeks, the doors are closing. I don't get it. And I don't know why. Excuse me. But I serve a God who is sovereign and in control, and so I don't have to. And so I just want to leave you, Simple Church family, with a great hope that we can always hold on to. And this is from the words of Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter of the Bible, and this is verses 1 through 5. 
Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. To our God, who is reigning on his throne and will be forevermore, be all glory and praise and honor and worth forever. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for... the opportunity to be a part of this family. That I don't deserve. And I don't deserve your love or your mercy or your forgiveness, but for whatever reason, for reasons that I will never understand, you just gave it to me anyways. And I could never thank you enough. I could never sit at your feet long enough. I could never praise you and lift you up enough. But because of your love, I will get to spend the rest of eternity trying. And so as we move forward, Give us peace. Give us more opportunities to spread your word and your hope and your love to a dark world. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.